The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. So today we're returning to Psalm 2. Um, if you're wondering what, what's happening with the Colossians series, Sean will resume next week with the Colossians series and then we'll probably have a few consecutive weeks. I don't know what I'm doing for Father's Day yet. I have no idea if we're going to stop Colossians or just keep plowing through and just pick up the mandem. Uh, we, we'll figure it out as we get closer to that. Um, so it's page 418 in the Bibles we've provided. So two weeks ago, we spent our time looking at the first three verses of this psalm. Psalm 2 reveals to us a world in rebellion against its creator and how God has responded to that. Every one of us is like a soldier who has woken up and slowly become aware that we are in the middle of a battlefield. But the problem is we don't know who we are and we don't know what side we're on. It's like we have amnesia. Um, but, you know, the propaganda flyers are falling from both sides and you're reading them and you're just trying to figure out what is going on. And you realize you can't just trust your instincts. That's what it actually means to be born into any cultural moment. We need reliable, authoritative information about the parties involved, about the landscape, about the nature of the conflict we're in, so that we can figure out how we can act in our best interests. That's actually what Psalm 2 offers us. It's a divine appraisal of our situation with accompanying guidance. So let's read it. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When you're unaware of the danger you are in, it is impossible to act in your best interest. That's why we have the Office of Disaster Preparedness and Emergency Management here in Jamaica. And once there is a storm heading our way, a tropical storm or a hurricane, they're doing their best to ensure that people hear the news, that the information is disseminated as widely as possible and as quickly as possible. What they're trying to do is put people in a position to act, to get out of danger, to secure their homes if they need to, to get out of low-lying areas, to get to higher ground. 
And in many cases, in as, as many cases as possible, the authorities don't just hope that people are gonna embrace the warnings. They provide help, they'll provide transportation, and they'll provide shelters where people can take refuge from the impending storm. One of the sad realities for our neighborhood, Haiti, is that in addition to the fact that they have terrible deforestation, they have tremendous difficulty when storms are coming in getting the news out to people who live in rural areas. So it means oftentimes you'll hear that a tropical storm or a hurricane and the death toll in Haiti just seems ridiculous. And you wonder, how is that? But that's part of what's going on for them. People aren't aware. And when you're not aware of the danger, it's impossible to act in your best interest. Psalm 2 is like a report that informs and warns us about the prevailing conditions in the whole world and gives us a forecast which is 100% accurate. It invites us to get to safety and urges us to call others to join us in taking refuge from the storm to come. There's a war raging and its conclusion has already been determined. The rebellion will be crushed by the God who rules over all through his chosen king. This report also gives us courage and hope to the, it gives courage and hope, sorry, to those who love God's king and who are caught in the conflict. When we listen to it and the spirit of God causes us to believe it, we are able to act in our best interests. We're also able to act in the best interests of others. Sorry, I'm battling my microphone cable here a little bit. Let me, let me win this fight. So we're able to act in our own best interest in hearing this report and believing it, to act in the best interest of others. We're also able to stand firm under tremendous pressure. As we learn from this psalm, as we are trained by this psalm, the ongoing effect is that our commitments, our allegiances, and our emotional lives are tuned to heaven's wavelength. We therefore benefit from hearing, believing, and repeating its urgent announcement. And that's the urgent announcement. It is in the best interest of rebels to take refuge in the king whom God has chosen to rule the world. It is in the best interest of rebels to take refuge in the king whom God has chosen to rule the world. Psalm 2 sings its truths in four stanzas of three verses each, which are actually very easy to identify. Some psalms are a little difficult to figure out, but this one just kind of breaks down very evenly, and you can see what's going on based on the changes in scene, the changes in speakers, and the changes in audience. So two weeks ago, as I mentioned, we focused on verses one through three under the heading, A Global Rebellion. Now we'll tackle the remaining three stanzas under these headings. The Cosmic Ruler, verses 4 to 6, the son's dominion, verses 7 to 9, and, and, and an unexpected invitation, verses 10 through 12. But before I dive into the text, what I want to do is to help you by framing the territory we're going to be in. Every now and then as I'm wrestling with a text and wrestling with its implications, I realize it dawns on me that you all might be served by an extended in, uh, uh, introduction like I'm going to do now. One of the things that makes preaching particularly challenging is that we're called to proclaim timeless truths to all who will listen, but we're doing that in a specific cultural moment and setting. Psalm 2 is a confrontational text, and you see that can elicit a range of reactions based on two factors, who we are and where we are. So firstly, who we are. 
There's an inherent challenge in preaching a confrontational text to an audience of very different people. And the truth is, any audience is an audience of very different people. Some of you may not be believers. Some of you, you're on a journey of faith. And maybe you're trying to figure out your milestones along that journey. You know you're being drawn to Jesus, but you're still evaluating. You're still getting to know him. You're still coming to understand what it means to follow Jesus. You're weighing the claims of the Bible. I suspect that many of you listening to me are committed to faith already. Committed to faith in Jesus. But the concepts that we have of our faith and our experience of Christianity can, can vary widely. But on top of all of that, there's this added layer. God in his grace has built us differently as believers. With different dispositions and different gifts. Colin Hansen has a wonderful book called Blind Spots, which is very helpful. And in it, he identifies three different types of believers with different gifts and their corresponding weaknesses and blind spots. Now, there, there might be more than three. He speculates about a fourth, which is interesting. But I agree with him that the categorization he provides is helpful and these differences are discernible. So here they are. There's compassionate, there's commissioned, and there's courageous. So let me work out what that looks like and the implications for even listening to a text like this. You may find that if God has given you the kind of compassionate heart that is drawn to people who are broken and drawn to the abused and the weak and the dominated, you're going to listen to a text like this and you're going to be a bit uncomfortable. Because this text is going at people. You might wonder why we have to be so divisive and aggressive. You know, why can't we all just get along and just love each other and care for each other? Why can't we just help people? Do you find that you have a strong passion or gift to make disciples of others and you desire to see the gospel spread around the world? And you might find that you're calibrated that way so much so that when you see people suffering in sin, you just think, well, maybe they just need to believe in Jesus and then everything will be fine. You know? Then your dominant gift might be that you're commissioned to spread the gospel. So you're going to love the last stanza of this particular Psalm, but you may find some of the depictions in the second and third stanzas to be a little troublesome because they're depicting judgment now. Or you may be a person who God has gifted to stand for truth with great courage in the face of opposition. So you're probably going to enjoy a lot of what's going on in this text. We also need to be careful not to miss the commission embedded, which has an aroma of compassion, or to think that that part of this text is for other people. So I'm deliberately taking the time to introduce you to these considerations for two reasons. The first is that I'm aware that depending, who you, depending on who you are, Psalm 2 might cause very different questions to arise in your mind. And I don't want you to think that we wouldn't welcome those questions if they were asked. The second reason is that we are on a journey together towards becoming a community. And we don't want to be the kind of community where only commissioned people feel comfortable or only courageous people feel at home, and so on and so forth. If we're going to be a strong local church, we need to be aware of different gifts and different dispositions among us and learn to listen to each other and learn from each other. The second factor that's going to shape how you hear a confrontational text like Psalm 2 is where we are. You see, we live in a particular time in history and a particular place in the world, and that makes a big difference to how you hear a text like this, how it's going to hit your ears. For many centuries, Christianity has been a dominant cultural and political force in the Western world. And that's been a very mixed experience. Christianity has brought many blessings to society. But the church has also made many mistakes by what it's done and what it has failed to do. 
And now what we're witnessing in the West is a rapid secularization and a passionate backlash against all things Christian. Some people say we had it coming, and I agree with them to a certain extent. But however you feel about it, what's beyond doubt is that if you live in the West, we are in the process of re-entering what will be very difficult times for those who name the name of Jesus. But at the same time, we live here in Jamaica, and we're living in something of a bubble, and one that may not last long. We feel the world around us changing, but the conscience of our society is still influenced enough by Christianity for us to be not under that much pressure, comparatively speaking. The biggest contention that we are dealing with right now in the public square is the debate about abortion, which of course is a tremendously important issue. But what I want you to recognize is this, because of when we are living and where we are living, the contested public square is the biggest battle we face. Most days we don't even have a clear sense of who our enemies are. If we were living as believers in another time or even just in another place in the world today, we would be aware of those who are against us every single day. They'd probably be the people who live right beside us. And they'd be trying to do a lot worse than make us look like fools and bigots in the public square. In Burkina Faso, several weeks ago, a church was attacked by gunmen and they basically shot up the church. They killed the pastor, two of his sons and three congregants. Um, there was an, another attack in Burkina Faso just last Sunday on a Catholic church. We are tremendously privileged to be able to meet the way we do without much thought about our safety. It's a luxury that hundreds and thousands of our brothers and sisters around the world today do not enjoy. So I say all that to encourage you to enter this psalm and to listen humbly with borrowed ears. Borrow the ears of Christian brothers and sisters throughout history up to this point, and the heirs of your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who meet each Sunday at the risk of their lives simply because they have embraced Jesus as their king. So with all that said, let's get into the text. So we, we love, it's going to serve you in this psalm just to follow through in your Bibles as we preach. So our first heading is the cosmic ruler. Uh, if you want a physical Bible, remember we have some over there. You're going to be able to scan and see what's going on better. So if you need one, just Take your hand up and somebody will, will bring one for you. People carry all kinds of pictures of God in their minds. But how do you picture God's emotional life? Have you thought much about how God feels and responds? Does God have emotions? Or does that make him too human in your imagination? Maybe he's much more of this kind of dispassionate, decision-making kind of being, you know, stoic and calculating. Well, in this second stanza of Psalm 2, God is laughing. And this isn't some kind of chuckling of somebody who's slightly amused. God is laughing at the rebels spoken about in the first three verses of this psalm. He is laughing them to scorn. Now, I don't know if you have the kind of friend who you just don't want him to laugh at your thought. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are people with a very distinct laugh, and it draws a crowd. You know, you wonder what them laughing at. So yeah, I can. Oh, I hear people calling names. They're not calling the names around here. But yeah, you, there are people around you. You just no. You, you you try to avoid doing anything that would make them laugh at you in public. For the original singers of this song, their enemies ranged from local warlords who would have a small force supporting them to kings who ruled over huge empires like the Babylonian Empire, which spanned much of the Middle East, parts of Europe, and parts of North Africa. 
These rulers commanded armies and from a merely human standpoint posed a real threat to Israel's well-being, especially if they colluded. And that's what would happen sometimes. A few small tribes would get together and say, we're going over there, we're going to take them. And God's response is that he's pointing and laughing. Tears are streaming down his face. Last time we saw, yeah, Warren is the kind of person you don't want him to laugh at you. <laughs> Last time we saw how Jesus' disciples claimed this psalm as their own in Acts chapter 4, as they faced persecution from the Jewish authorities, they recognized that just as Psalm 2 pictured, their leaders, their own leaders, the Jews, had conspired with the Roman authorities to crucify Jesus and were now threatening them for preaching the gospel. And God was pointing and laughing. Because of how the disciples in Acts applied this psalm to their situation, we can confidently and appropriately apply it to the world of our day. God is still laughing at rebels. He's laughing at world leaders. He's laughing at UN resolutions which reflect the accelerating rejection of Christian thought in the West. He's laughing at governments and the local militia in the Middle East whose hostility has reduced the Christian population from 20% to 5% in only a few years. He's laughing at Western secular media and influencers. He's laughing at Hollywood and celebrities and popular musicians who shape and express the spirit of the age. He's laughing at godless academia and the culture warriors who resent the Bible. Does that feel appropriate to you? Isn't it almost scandalous? No. What is scandalous is the rebellion that we learned about in verses 1 to 3. That's what's entirely inappropriate. Our rebellion is scandalous and entirely inappropriate because God created us to glorify him, to love him, to honor him, and to experience his fulsome blessings through our right relationship with him. And even in our rebellion, he gives us every breath we breathe. As Andrew Wilson says, even those who oppose Jesus are themselves being sustained by his powerful word. God's laughter vividly illustrates the fact that his rule is completely unthreatened by human rebellion. Even the rebellion of the most powerful among us. Now, what God is doing and where he's doing it in this picture matter greatly. He sits in the heavens. When ancient kings sat on their thrones, it was not to relax. It was to rule. He rules from the heavens. Heaven is not a distant realm that has no influence over what happens on earth. It's not a retirement village for good people when they die. Heaven is not happy but helpless. Heaven rules over earth absolutely. That's one of the through-going themes in the Psalms and in the entire Bible for that matter. From God's throne in heaven, he rules over all the nations of the world. Let that truth strengthen you in your prayers when you begin to pray as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven. But his response does not end with laughter. Look at verse 5. He doesn't only find the rebellion amusing. He is angry. Wrath is God's deliberate and calibrated response to sin. He's not throwing a tantrum or flying off the handle. The rebellion was articulated in declaring, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. God responds with his own declaration. You see me? I have set my king on Zion, 
my holy hill. God's chosen ruler, ruling from God's chosen place. Now, how is this announcement of verse 6 an expression of God's wrath? What's so terrifying about what he says here? Well, you have to remember the context. The surrounding nations opposed and rejected Israel's king. Now they're hearing the announcement that the one they have rejected is God's chosen king. This king has the backing of the sovereign one who rules from heaven. And God is not one for mere talk. There's a wonderful illustration of this just in human terms when Israel returns uh, after the exile and they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And all these opposing nations around them are making trouble for them and just, just interfering with what's going on. They're spreading rumors. They're telling lies. They're trying to do everything to stop this process. And what God does is he causes his people to have the favor of the big guy, the big king. And once that happened, all the opposition melted away. That's just a picture of his own support for his people and the way he works. And the reason this announcement is such a terrifying announcement. So think with me of our day. The Bible teaches that Jesus will return bodily one day soon to take his place as the rightful ruler of the whole earth. Imagine the faces of those, of people in Ordi who have ignored, who have belittled, who have harassed, who have insulted, who have opposed Jesus, and who have just made life miserable for his people. When Jesus returns and they recognize that God has made him the ruler of the universe and that their fate is in his hands. The declaration of the cosmic ruler is the worst possible news for rebels. But for us, and especially if we borrow the ears of our brothers and sisters who are suffering uh, in greater ways than we are, this declaration is such good news. It's a joyful song. God's rule is unthreatened by the rebellion. We can face suffering for the sake of Christ with the quiet assurance that a day of reckoning is coming. We have sided with Jesus and God, and God has and will establish his rule. In the next stanza, a new voice takes the floor. We're going to hear from the anointed, God's chosen king himself, about his relationship with God and his rule. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. And our title is The Son's Dominion. So far, I've been preaching through Psalm 2 as if it is ultimately about Jesus. Two weeks ago, we saw in Acts 4 that that's what Jesus' disciples realized after his death and resurrection. But, you know, there's so much more here that is fulfilled in Jesus. And this section is where we find it in its highest potency. In this stanza, we hear the voice of the king speaking of his relationship with God and of God's promises to him. Now, to understand what the writer of Psalm 2 is doing here, we need to see the connection between this passage and 2 Samuel 7. So in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David and he promises to establish a Davidic line of kings forever. So listen to 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14a. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. For Israel's king, sonship did not mean that they could do whatever they wanted. It meant that they reigned as God's representative and lived under God's discipline. 
Verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7 continues. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. In Psalm 2, the king sings of God's decree. You are my son. The parallel line reinforces this. Today I have begotten you. Today is referring to the king's coronation day. So when this psalm was sung by Israelites under the old covenant, it was recalling and celebrating God's promise to David and the special relationship that God had with the king, where the king was like an adopted son. They understood that their fate as a people was in, in, inseparably bound up with that of their king. That's what the history of Israel shows. Whenever Israel had a good king, the nation prospered. But whenever they had an unrighteous king who did what he pleased, the whole nation suffered. As believers, our fate is inseparably bound up with that of our King Jesus. If he does not deliver on his promises to us, our allegiance to him is wasted. That's why understanding Jesus' tremendously special relationship with God will lead us to sing in honor of him and enjoy because of what that means for us. Now, the New Testament celebrates Jesus' sonship. And some of you will be familiar with some of the points at which it does this. At his baptism, God says of Jesus, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, when the disciples got a glimpse of Jesus' glory, God says it again with the addition, listen to him. But there's more. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul celebrates Jesus as God's chosen king par excellence. He points out that Jesus was descended from David, which positions him to be the heir of God's covenant with David that we read about in 2 Samuel 7. And he says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 of that letter quotes Psalm 2-7 and he connects the coronation spoken of there with Jesus' ascension and sitting down at the right hand. Of God. What both of these writers are communicating is that in his resurrection and in his ascension, Jesus has been crowned by God as king of the universe, the ultimate fulfillment of what Psalm 2 was anticipating. And further, Jesus' relationship with God far exceeded that of any king before him in David's line. He's God's own son, therefore, he's divine. He's a righteous and sinless king. God is fully pleased with him. God always listens to him and grants his requests. And as that stands, that's very important. Look in your Bibles at verse 8. This king's rule is not extended by conquest, but by request. He lives in submission to God his Father, and his rule is extended through prayer. The same raging nations of verse 1 will be his inheritance. He will rule over the whole earth. Now, the images of verse 9 seem really harsh. This kind of breaking and iron scepter and all of these things. So it raises the question, is this king's rule a good thing? Is he a good king? Or are we exchanging multiple tyrants for a single one? And if the psalm is calling us to join in the song, how do we sing this? There's no escaping the fact that this psalm celebrates the, rule, the fact that the rule of God's king will be absolute. Most translations acknowledge in their notes that another reading of this verse renders that verb translated break as a rule, and it's a picture of shepherding. This verse is actually quoted several times in the book of Revelation, 
And that's how it renders it. He will rule. That idea, that shepherding picture, adds a nuance that Jesus will care for his people and deal with his enemies. His rule will be a constructive one as he governs his people to live in righteousness with absolute authority. And his rule will be the end for those who continue to oppose him. In a world of deception and theft, sexual assault and human trafficking, murder and war, lust and adultery, isn't it good news that the wicked will end in destruction? Isn't it good news that we know evil will be conquered? The wicked are as helpless as pottery in his hands. We need this song because we need hope. We need substantive and real hope. There's so many songs you listen to for, written over many years, especially in this pop era. And what you'll hear in them is this kind of empty and baseless optimism for the future. Where there'll be a better tomorrow. Built on nothing but thin air. But this song is built on the surety of God's promises. And it's a joyful song because the promise of the Psalms is not the totalitarian rule of God which will be resented by the nations, but the nations singing to God. That means that the final power is not just one of God overpowering. Sorry, I said something wrong there. That means that the final picture, sorry, is not just one of God overpowering his enemies. Look at this connection. Do you recognize how the risen Christ called his disciples to extend his rule? They're well-known verses. They're in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that brings us quite neatly to our final stanza in this song. An unexpected invitation in verses 10 through 12. Now up to this point, Psalm 2 has painted a vivid picture of a world in revolt. The response of the sovereign one and the coronation of his chosen king whose dominion is the whole world. Now, in light of all that, this song instructs and invites rebels to act in their own best interest by embracing the rule of God's king. Now, it would be easy to mistake that for a threat or an ultimatum. But in the light of the seriousness of the rebellion and the promise of verse 12, which we'll come to, this is better understood as a tremendously gracious invitation to undeserving rebels to enjoy the blessings of God's king rather than experience God's wrath. Suddenly here, in verse 10, this psalm starts to speak with the tone of wisdom literature. It's counseling. It's inviting. It's warning. It's appealing. And there's great irony here. I mean, aren't kings and rulers supposed to be wise? Aren't they supposed to be the ones instructing others instead of receiving instructions? Jesus, in his teaching, said that Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And can't we be such proud people? Even those of us who are not very important in human reckoning, we can be so proud in our thoughts and in our preferences. As I wrote, my heart just longed for us to be praying for those whom we love, that God would open their eyes to their folly. And give them wise hearts to respond to his invitation. That folly places us in great danger. 
This situation is deadly serious, but there's a path to safety. And what that path looks like is joyful, fearful submission to God and to his chosen king. Look at verses 11 and 12. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's a strange combination, isn't it? Joy and fear. I mean, we're singing a song that's based on that this morning. Come and stand before your maker full of wonder, full of fear. Do you realize that we can be drawn to something, be devoted to something, yet be awed and terrified at the same time? Surfers can love the ocean while being in awe of its power. And that fear actually keeps them safe. The adoration and the awe, the devotion and the dread walk hand in hand and function to intensify each other. If you're going to be in a relationship with the living God, your emotional life is going to be complex and textured. That verb serve expresses the idea of worshiping God and obeying his laws. The character of our worship and obedience ought to be like joyful shouting. My kids know the times when I get into joyful shouting. When my team scores in an important game, it's uncontained. I mean, they, and, and what they love to do, which really annoys me, is they love to rush in and just make noise as if they're interested. <laughs> what is wrong with these children? You weren't watching the game. Leave me alone. So it has this character like joyful shouting, yet at the same time we tremble. We can never afford to become so familiar with God that we forget that he's holy. Alec Moitje explains, the joy of salvation is ever aware of personal lack of merit, the greatness of divine mercy, and the unabated holiness of God. Let me read that one for you again. The joy of salvation is ever aware of personal lack of merit, the greatness of divine mercy, and the unabated holiness of God. That fear, that reverence, leads us to watch our lips and to watch our lives. We want to say and sing things about God that are true. And we take pains to avoid sin and to repent when we have sinned. This fear serves us. We need it. The absence of it is one of the reasons that many of us still suffer the domination of sinful patterns in our lives. It's because our fear of God is tiny in comparison to, to our fear of what others will think of us if we confess our sins. To kiss the Son is to honor and subject oneself to Him. To Jesus, to God's chosen King. Similar to the way subjects of a king or queen would come up and kiss their hand or their ring to express their loyalty. If you're going to be reconciled to God, you must submit to Jesus. Our culture needs that message because we think we can have respect for God and be nice and chummy chummy with God and ignore Jesus. And don't think you can play games with Jesus either. You have no way of knowing when his patience with you will run out and the road you are on will suddenly reach its end. But you see, what's amazing here is that rebels are invited to escape his wrath and to enter his blessings. It would be one thing to be invited to escape his wrath. You know, just to not get punished. But the invitation here is an invitation to experience the fullness of the blessings of God's chosen king. See life in Christ is not a joyless toil in exchange for escaping punishment. 
We are invited to experience the favor of God and the joy that comes with it now as we take refuge in Jesus. He has been appointed by God to be both the judge and the savior of rebels. I love how Derek Kidna summarizes this. This final beatitude leaves no doubt of the grace that inspires the call of verse 10. What fear and pride interpret as bondage is in fact security and bliss. And there is no refuge from him, only in him. Psalm 2 ends where Psalm 1 began. Now, some of you will remember from several months ago, I, I taught you that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are like twin doors. They're like an entryway, pillars entering all of the Psalms. So look at some of the connections here. Psalm 2 ends with a promise of blessing. And that's exactly how Psalm 1 begins. You can look at it in your Bible. Blessing comes through God's anointed king and through following the blessed one in the blessed way. And what we found is that the righteous man of Psalm 1 and the righteous king of Psalm 2 are the same person, Jesus. He shares with us the blessings that come from his perfect adherence to God's law. Blessings we do not deserve. And he's our refuge from the wrath of God. Wrath that we deserve. We've listened to Psalm 2. Hearing these truths and feeling their resonance. But now we must reckon again with an invitation to join in this song. You see the Psalms are not a spectator sport. We need to get involved. That's what they're calling us to do. Now for the original readers, to sing this psalm meant trusting in God's rule and promises and looking to God's king, even when the kingship seemed to be failing. Even when the arrows were flying around them and friends and family were dying. For the early church, praying this psalm would have meant trusting in and celebrating God's rule while suffering at the hands of the authorities, while fleeing from one city to the next, while being thrown to wild animals in the Colosseum. All the while joyfully spreading the good news of the refuge to be found in Jesus. The best place from which we can begin to fill our lungs to sing this song is right at the end of the psalm. If we are hiding in Jesus, then we have believed the news of our own rebellion and recognized God as the rightful king of our lives and of the world. We have embraced our need for a refuge from his wrath and that Jesus is our only hope. When we are hiding in Jesus every day, dealing with our own sin and repenting of our own rebellion, we will remember that the rebels around us, our family members, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, are in grave danger from God. And we can feel compassion for them because we want them to experience the mercy that we have experienced. When you're living in that grace-filled air, you can sing these words in a way that honors God and will attract some to God's mercy, even when you sing of their rebellion even as it offends others and repels them. To sing these words is to join with God in inviting others to humbly receive his mercy. So it's fitting that what is required to repeat these words, especially in the environment we live in now, is humility. You don't need to be a gifted evangelist or to be able to answer everybody's questions. J.C. Ryle said this, the man who does most good to souls is often the simple believer who says to his friends, I have found a savior. Come and see him. So, will you join in this song? Let's pray.
You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.